afternoon we're going to start opening up um, the second of these qualities of the boundless heart, which uh, we did a spoiler this morning, so you know what they all are now, but the second one is compassion. And the heart, as you know, has four chambers. And sometimes these four, brown, uh, these four qualities of the heart, these four boundless qualities of the heart are, uh, are referred to as the four different chambers of the heart. And in a sense, they all, they all need to function together. So our unpacking of them one by one is a, is a slightly artificial thing that we, we have to do in order to understand them. But they're really what the heart does in response to different things, that it's the same boundless heart that's operating. Another image that is sometimes used is the image of a house. And we can see metta as being the foundation of all these, the foundation of the house. <coughs> that intention of well-wishing and of kindness. And then um, compassion, joy, are the walls and the rooms, and sometimes equanimity, you could think of it as being the roof that keeps it all safe, and we'll look at that uh, more tomorrow. So compassion is the heart's response to suffering, and it's described as the quivering or the trembling of the heart in response to pain. So it's, it's a moving towards something rather than a, a pulling back from it. We were talking about resonating this morning, and uh, I, I was told that if you put a, a violin on a table and you play another one nearby it, the strings of the violin that's just lying on the table will start to resonate. And actually this is what happens with us and our emotions between people. So it's natural that what happens when the heart encounters pain in another is that it starts to resonate with that. And in a, in a strange way, the, the feeling of compassion itself is a pleasant feeling. Suffering is, is unpleasant, but compassion, there's actually something uh, very beautiful and soothing in the feeling of compassion. It feels healing. And we, we suffer, in a sense, when that gets blocked off. And of course, there are many reasons why um, the natural feeling or expression of compassion becomes blocked. Many occasions when it's been uh, the suffering that we encounter just feels overwhelming or it's been unsafe to express the compassionate heart. There's a story of a, a, a big... Uh, in, in the jungle in Southeast Asia, there was a... a very large concrete or clay Buddha that was much revered for many centuries. And uh, at one point, cracks started to appear in the clay. And the monks who were tending to this Buddha uh, looked inside it and they could see glimmers of gold coming through. <coughs> and uh, eventually it was discovered that inside the clay Buddha was the largest solid gold Buddha in Southeast Asia. But what had happened was that over many years, and I think it was somewhere on the border between Thailand and Burma, over many years of conflict and difficulty, um, people had covered this golden Buddha over with clay to protect it. 
And I think this is what happens to our heart. This is a, a, a kind of metaphor for the heart that is naturally golden and radiant, and yet uh, it's also very natural that it becomes covered over. So the boundless heart and this space of loving awareness is a natural home for us. It's our birthright, but it's also naturally occluded because to our our egoic self, it's a very vulnerable space to abide in. And we learn to cover it up in self-protection. So things like anger and fear, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just natural um, evolutionary adaptations that we all have. They're healthy expressions of protest, which often arise in response to, um, to the, the perception of suffering in oneself or another. But the trouble is that we get stuck there and we forget actually what's there underneath. And in fact, another of our, another of our natural evolutionary adaptations is the adaptation to tend and befriend. So uh, there's a kind of tension there between the fight-flight-freeze response and the tend and befriend response. And what our meditation practice can help us do is to uh, re connect and make, make this tending and befriending and the uh, eye of wisdom more accessible, more available to us. Because they enable us to become stronger in acknowledging and accepting our own vulnerability and suffering and uh, the suffering of others. I think one of, one of the things that makes this all tricky is how our culture kind of debases suffering and um, yeah, we tend to see suffering perhaps as a sign of failure. You know, um, happiness is a, the measure of success. Suffering is a sign of failure. So we often, it's, it's hard to even admit uh, difficulty sometimes to ourselves. There was a series of articles recently in the New York Times about uh, the value of suffering. And uh, they sounded very Buddhist to me and people... Uh, people pointing out how actually we learn and we benefit and we grow through suffering. And I was really amazed to see that when the comments started coming in, the amount of hostility that there was to this view. It's like culturally we really, it's a place we don't want to go. And this hasn't always been the case. And, you know, some other cultures have been much more, uh, given suffering much more dignity like I think of the ancient Greeks and the, these amazing tragedies that were produced and things. It's a, um, you know, there, there is a dignity to it. So two important uh, things to be developed here are self-compassion and forgiveness, which comes, forgiveness comes somewhere um, between the metta and the compassion, I would say. But this... Uh, sense of um, difficulty around forgiveness is something that, that can block the flow of compassion for us. <coughs> it takes a certain amount of humility to really allow ourselves to um, contact uh, this compassion. I was interested to see that um, you know, in, in Buddhism often we balance these two factors of wisdom and compassion 
like they're considered uh, two wings and you can't really fly without both of them. And I read that Confucius actually had three qualities that he named as being the universal characteristics of men. And these were wisdom and compassion. And the third one was courage. And I think um, that's, that's somehow really important in this work that we're doing together, actually, the factor of courage. And uh, the word itself, courage, obviously comes from the French word cœur, the heart. Um, so to, to kind of um, muster that, have that flavour in mind, that there's a, a, a courage that's required for this work. Compassion is the, counter, the counterbalance to cruelty. Cruelty is known as the far enemy of compassion. Um, it's also harmlessness or non-cruelty. And as I said before, the most common uh, manifestation for us is probably not cruelty to one another. It's actually the difficulty we find in actually being compassionate with ourselves. So one of the things that uh, helps open this up is when we become really more in touch with our own suffering. Knowing suffering is a gateway to compassion. There's a poem from uh, Naomi Shiagnai that some of you might, be, might know called Kindness, which is um, kindness in the sense of compassion, really. And she says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like a salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in the white poncho lies dead beside, by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. And she goes on to say that as you open to this, to the universality of suffering, then it becomes only kindness that makes sense anymore. And I think this is really true. And I love also this, this description, the ten, tender gravity of kindness. There's a gravity to it. So compassion is the antidote to cruelty or non-caring. Another, uh, what, what's called in Buddhist tradition, enemy of compassion is uh, pity, near enemy of compassion. So compassion is not a looking down on people or a distancing yourself from their suffering. It's like knowing that this person, knowing that this person could be you. Wise compassion is respectful. It sees, it sees people's suffering, but it sees that it's not the totality of who they are. It sees the potential in them. And that goes for ourselves as well. Compassion towards ourselves actually uh, sees, sees the fullness of our being. You think of how the Buddha saw people. Passion comes from um, the Greek and the Latin word to suffer. And compassion is uh, suffering with, the, with another. 
So somebody pointed out the opposite of it could be apathy. So this is, this is not about apathy, this is about caring. Another way that um, a near enemy of, of compassion manifests is, is um, when one gets really overwhelmed by grief. Grief comes from the word um, gravare, which is to be held down, burdened or pressed down. So um, compassion is actually, it's, it's what's able to meet suffering without being crushed by it. So, of course, in order to practice this, we really have to balance caring for ourselves with caring for other people. And I really like a, a poem from Rumi about this. Sometimes we feel that what, what's being asked of us here in cultivating the boundless heart is to cultivate a heart that is almost frozen open, like there's no permission for it to... Uh, ebb and flow with life and this poem from Rumi um, I, f I feel it's really it, it's really helpful this perspective he says your, your hand opens and closes and opens and closes if it were always a fist or always stretched open you would be paralysed your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding. The two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as bird wings. So your heart is a, is a living, pulsing thing and it needs, it needs its moments of moving towards and its moments of coming back. And uh, as, we, as we develop our ability to be with and be around suffering, we also have to know, you know what it, where to find this balance, this point of, of uh, non-overwhelm, and, and really uh, balance care of the self with care of others. The, uh, Catherine's been talking about the, the Buddha Rupa here, the Buddha statue as, a, as an embodiment of equanimity. The other statue in the room is one of Kuan Yin, who is the Chinese... Um, Bodhisattva or um, uh, being of compassion, and the name Kuan Yin is the one who, the one who hears or actually Kuan <coughs> cares for. The Yin is the sounds of the world, so Kuan Yin cares for the sounds of, hears and cares for the cries of the world, the sounds of the world, at ease. So she retains this. Uh, posture of ease, but is totally open to contact with the cries and the sounds of the world. And you notice this often you see some statues of her with her hands in different gestures, and she has these very beautiful hands, and these are beautiful too, but they're resting in the lap. And um, something about the way that Kuan Yin's hands uh, touch things with a great softness. You know, um, there's some. Yeah, the way that we, uh, our attention can do this too. So this kind of um, compassion—it's not about jumping in to fix things. You know, she is she's sitting there at ease, and she has uh, traditionally a thousand hands and a thousand eyes that are able to respond to suffering. But the first thing is to actually touch it with ease, without um, having this sense of having to fix it. 
and then into that space of resonance, like the strings on the violin resonating, then appropriate response will come. Because <coughs> if you think about it, what do you need when, you've, when you're uh, really suffering in some way? Generally, often what we're looking for when we're looking for compassion in another is not someone who's going to come in and sort us out and tell us what's right. She. We want somebody who's really rooted in themselves and who's able to stay present with us in our suffering and who's able to embrace us for our struggle but also for our strength. We want to be loved as we are unconditionally. And then, of course, if we need, if we need something else, then that can come. But somehow if somebody steps in and sorts us out without that sense of are having been fully received. It just doesn't land in the same way. It doesn't feel that same sense of, ah. Oh. Something about it feels incomplete. It can also be really helpful uh, when faced with the suffering that we all have, the suffering of loss and... Um, sickness, different tragedies that happen in the course of our lives, to remember that we're not alone in this. There's nobody in this room or on this planet who isn't touched by suffering. The sense of not having to shoulder it alone. So this is kind of different from, remember when I was a child, sometimes I would would come home and I'd say oh I'm so tired and my mother who was a stressed out working single mum would go oh you're tired you know what do you think <laughs> what do you think I am <laughs> and that, to me that was just you know bless her but that was so unhelpful <laughs> it's not what you you need to know you need somebody who's going to go oh you know yes isn't it difficult being tired I know being tired so there's the classic story in the, in the scriptures from the time of the Buddha when this, this woman, Kisa Gotami, went to the Buddha in distress because her only son had died and she was carrying this little um, dead baby in her arms and went to the Buddha and said, please, please, can you make him come back to life? And so the Buddha uh, said to her, if you go round to the house, I want you to bring me a mustard seed from the house in which nobody has ever died, and then I will bring your son back to life. And so Kisa Gotami went running around all the houses in the town, knocking on the door. You know, has anybody died in this house? And somebody said, oh yes, my mother just died last month, and the next house, oh, my brother uh, Five, six months ago or whatever and she couldn't find a single place in which nobody had lost somebody and eventually she gave up and she came back to the Buddha and she kind of understood that this was just part of the plight of being human and uh, she, found, she found a way of accepting of grieving her son and accepting the loss as part of the normal human way of things Jack Cornfield tells a story of he was in a um, at a very big uh, 
gathering with another another Buddhist teacher, and they were talking about suffering. And a woman um, talked about her her loss. Somebody very close to her had committed suicide, and she was very distraught. And the other teacher with Jack did, you know, talked about um, holding the grief in a boundless heart. And, and so on. It was, it was very helpful on some levels, but you could also tell that this woman was actually, you know, it, was, it wasn't quite uh, giving her the fullness of support that she was looking for. And then Jack had this idea to just ask, I think there were more than 2,000 people in the room, who else here? Is there anyone else here who's lost a dear one to suicide? And a number of hands went up. And then he asked them to stand and just to look at this woman. And the woman looked at them. And he said in that moment, there was something like, uh, the room became like a temple. There was an exchange of empathy between them that was just very sacred and very healing. Just nothing that you can do to fix or to change that situation but to have it really acknowledged and received in an open heart So I want to just end with one more story. Um, and this is from, from the writer Pico Ayer, which he wrote as part of this discussion in the New York Times about, about suffering and the value of suffering. Just people asking, them soul searching, asking themselves soul-searching questions about it. He says, Almost eight months after the Japanese tsunami... I accompanied the Dalai Lama to a fishing village, Ishinomaki, that had been laid waste by the natural disaster. Gravestones lay tilted at crazy angles when they had not collapsed altogether. What once, a year before, had been a thriving network of schools and homes was now just rubble. Three orphans barely out of kindergarten stood in their blue school uniforms to greet him outside of a temple that had miraculously survived the catastrophe. Inside the wooden building by its altar were dozens of coloured boxes containing the remains of those who had no surviving relatives to claim them, all lined up perfectly in a row behind framed photographs of young and old. As the Dalai Lama got out of his car, he saw hundreds of citizens who had gathered on the street behind ropes to greet him. He went over and asked them how they were doing. Many collapsed into sobs. Please change your hearts. Be brave, he said, while holding some and blessing others. Please help everyone else and work hard. That's the best offering you can make to the dead. When he turned round, however, I saw him brush away a tear himself. Then he went into the temple and spoke to the crowds assembled on seats there. 
He couldn't hope to give them anything other than his sympathy and presence, he said. As soon as he heard about the disaster, he knew he had to come here, if only to remind the people of Ishinomaki that they were not alone. He could understand a little of what they were feeling, he went on, because he, as a young man of 23 in his home in Lhasa, had been told one afternoon to leave his homeland that evening to try to prevent further fighting between Chinese troops and Tibetans around his palace. He left his friends, his home, and even one small dog, he said, and had never in 52 years been back. <coughs> Two days after his departure, he heard that his friends were dead. He had tried to see loss as an opportunity and to make many innovations in exile that would have been harder still had he been in, had, would have been harder had he still been in old Tibet. The large Japanese audience listened silently and then turned insofar as its members were able to putting things back together again the next day. The only thing worse than assuming you could get the better of suffering, I began to think, is imagining you could do nothing in its wake. And the tear I'd witnessed made me think that you could be strong enough to witness suffering, and yet human enough not to pretend to be master of it. Sometimes it's those things we least understand that deserve our deepest trust. So this practice of compassion that we cultivate in our meditation, yes, it, it uh, should and it often does end in expression and action. But the first thing is to simply open, have the heart that is willing to be open, willing to resonate, willing to not freeze, but to expand. <coughs> and it can expand and it can settle, it can it can contract and not in a sense of tightness but that a natural ebb and flow of things but to to really be willing to open to suffering because that is also the gateway to wisdom the gateway to compassion Compassion dictates that you need to have a little move and a stretch, then do so. And we'll sit just for a few minutes before I send you out to do some walking, and then we'll come back and unpack this a little further.
So you could start by just noticing what arises you in, in, in you in response to turning your mind to these things and these stories. And there may be that it triggers a lot of thought about different situations and what's right and wrong and what can be done. And it may be that somewhere deeper than that, you touch into a felt sense of this tender gravity. This is the Dalai Lama brushed away a tear. And we're all here, brothers and sisters in old age, sickness and death, and children of the earth. The earth is somehow our, our support and our ally. We recognize this universality of our humanity. So trusting the support of the earth as you sit here. And the air that you breathe. These great elements that support our very being. And whatever struggles or difficulties you've brought with you in coming here, letting them be held with kindness, with the soft touch of Kuan Yin who hears. who hears and responds. <coughs> Letting yourself know that you care. You care about your suffering.
you care about your difficulties. And perhaps there are other people close to you also who are struggling, who you know to be struggling at this time. And feeling what it's like to hold them in your heart. And just letting them know that you care for their pain and their difficulty. May you be held in compassion and may they be held in compassion. Allowing the heart to breathe, just as it breathed in the Qigong. This is not a, a head job, it's a heart job. Breathing in the suffering, breathing out peace.
we have half an hour now for walking meditation and um, can continue the practice <coughs> very much as this morning. Um, and if it helps you when you pause and turn around to make the gesture of one hand over the heart and one hand over the belly, uh, or even while you're walking, then um, we encourage you to do that. And this time, um, whenever you notice any sense of difficulty or turmoil, sadness or struggle arising in yourself, then to just uh, let the mind turn, experiment with allowing the mind to turn towards it rather than what we often do is kind of try to make it go away. And uh, we want the, the peaceful bit of the walking. But just experiment with this opening to it and offering yourself the sense of, I care about this. And you might use, like to use the phrase, I care about this pain, I care about this difficulty. Or, may I be held in compassion. May I be free from pain and sorrow or any other phrase that comes to mind that feels resonant for you. And if somebody else who you know crosses your mind or crosses your path even in front of you and you know that they are struggling in some way, then extending that same wish, may you be free from suffering to them as well. But you don't have to go out looking for the suffering. It's going to pop in from time to time. So, you know, you can also... Um, I'm trying to find another word other than titrate, but moderate what you do. It may be that at times it's just good to have a, a break and just feel the body walking on the earth and that, that sense of calm and peace and ease. So whatever's, whatever's happening, and just really being using the body and the breath to help you stay centred, stay present. And then we'll come back here in half an hour and I'll do a guided uh, compassion meditation with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.